WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET, connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, art, and culture affecting the city and our region. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. Coming up today on the program, we'll hear about a podcast that's highlighting the women of techno and a native Detroiter with a unique storefront. But first on the Metro, since the October 7th attacks on Israel, there has been a lot of tension in the Jewish American community. That's because as American Jews have been shifting to the political left, many Israeli citizens have been shifting further to the right. Now many American Jews feel split. Most are staunch Democratic voters within a party that is increasingly becoming critical of Israel and supportive of Palestine. Within the Jewish community, older Jews are much more likely to identify with the state of Israel and to strongly support it, while younger ones are more likely to be critical of the state and particularly its right-wing leadership. So how should we understand the political experiences of American Jews? What are the more specific differences within the voting bloc? And how much are Jewish politics changing at this moment? To discuss this, we have Peter Beinart here. Peter is the editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, author of Beinart Notebook, Substack, and a professor at the City University of New York. Peter, welcome to the Metro. Thanks. Nice to be with you. It's nice to have you here also because this is something that we're seeing, something that's shifting, but I don't know how many folks know the full story behind it. So let's just start generally looking at the voting patterns of American Jews. What are they right now from where you sit? American Jews are a strange group politically because they have been voting overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party since the 1930s. And what's unusual about that is that other immigrant groups that came in the early 20th century and became viewed as white, let's say, Italian Americans or Irish or Polish Americans eventually left the Democratic Party and by the in the starting in the in the 60s, 70s and 80s started moving into the Republican Party. Of course, most white Americans vote for the Republican Party at this point. But Jews, uh, despite the fact that they're fairly economically prosperous on average, have stuck with the Democratic Party. It's kind of a bit of a demographic anomaly. Yeah, so I think it's one of the reasons people are really paying attention to this moment right now. And how are American Jews interpreting this moment, especially coming out of October 7th, and how things have been progressing on the national or the international stage, I should say? Well, the the organized American Jewish community has for a long time identified itself as kind of liberal or or progressive, again, voted for the Democrats, but also been fairly pro-Israel. Um uh, and I think, again, there are obviously differences, but as a kind of as a as a general rule, I think what's happened since October 7th, what's happened even before October 7th, though, and it's continued since October 7th, is we're seeing a pretty substantial generational divide among American Jews in which older American Jews are staunchly behind the Israeli government or before October 7th, even more intensely now after October 7th. And yet, if you look at the protests, Call around the country calling for a ceasefire. Many of them are being organized with American Jews 
at the forefront, mostly younger American Jews, who for them, their conception of Jewishness leads them to be much more pro-Palestinian. Yeah. And, you know, you're someone yourself who's actually had a little bit of a change or maybe a big change, I should say. I won't speak for you on your thoughts. Uh, how did you change? How did you yourself change the way you thought about Israel before the war in Gaza and what caused that change to happen? I don't think it was the it was the war in Gaza that changed my views. Mm. Really, those hap- that but the change that change happened earlier on in my life. Um, but in some ways, it is not. That, although I'm a bit older than some of those young folks, in some ways, my story isn't that different than them. Which was that I grew up in a in a in a, a very Zionist family in which the existence of the state of Israel was very important. I still feel a very strong connection to Israelis and Israeli society. But at a certain point in my life, um, as a young adult. I went and spent time in the West Bank with Palestinians, and it was a really transformative experience. And I think young people are more likely to have had that experience, either by going there themselves or just getting to know Palestinians in the United States. And when you hear Palestinians talk about what Israel and Zionism have meant for them, of their expulsion in 1948 at Israel's founding, being held in the West Bank as permanent non-citizens under military law without basic human rights, you you realize that that there's a there's a dark underbelly to this to the way this state functions that if you're someone who cares about human rights who cares about equality for all people you can't look away from yeah we're speaking with peter beinart editor at large of jewish currents and peter you know you did bring up of course the changing views especially with younger american jews but while we do see a lot of that on the protest front front and what they're pushing for. Sometimes the older American Jews, I don't think we hear necessarily as much about their positions. We know the political posture of President Biden, for example. But what for you, for people who don't know, what is their political posture on this right now? What do they want, the older group want in terms of a, a political remedy right now with what's happening in Gaza? I mean, again, I should no no group is 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 right. homogenous, right. right? They're obviously right. not all older American Jews, but I think they tend to lean on average more towards the view that uh, Israel needs to protect itself, and uh, what happened on October seventh was horrifying, which of course it was, um, and that Israel needs to destroy Hamas. That Israel can never be safe as long as Hamas is there. And so, yes, it's tragic that all of these people are are dying in Gaza, but. Israel has no choice. It has to win the war. And so I think that is, you know, if you look at a group like APAC, for instance, which is the most powerful American Jewish political organization, pro-Israel organization, that's the view they take. Mm. So are there any particular paths that most American Jews would like to see Israel take? I mean, you did mention the ceasefire option, but I'm also hearing that there are some who think that's not necessarily viable. So what would the solution look like uh, for most American Jews or just explain the range of solutions that you've heard in your work? I mean, I think if there were a uh, uh, an, uh, an agreement to get hostages released and there was a pause in the fighting, I think most American Jews would support that because, you know, there is even those people, those folks who are very pro-Israel, there's an inclination to kind of defer to the Israeli government. I think the real divide comes on should the U.S. be using its leverage with Israel to demand an end to the fighting and uh, an, a ceasefire. So should the United States be conditioning its military aid to say, we're not going to allow you to use our weapons to continue this massive slaughter in Gaza? Should the United States support efforts at the, at the United Nations, for instance, to, uh, to condemn Israel 
for what's happening. That's where you see the real divide. Yeah, well, how do you best think then that peace could be brought between the two sides, Palestinians and Israelis? I mean, fundamentally, I believe that if Israeli Jews want to be safe in the long term, that Palestinians also have to be safe. That, you know, Martin Luther King talked about black and white Americans as in a mutual in a mutual garment of destiny, that our faith were intertwined and that what what was bad for one group of people would ultimately be bad for the other as well. I think that's true for Palestinians and Jews. And so I don't think Israeli Jews will ever truly be safe if Palestinians aren't safe. But if Palestinians aren't free, if they don't have basic human rights, the rights to be citizens of the country in which they live, they will never be safe. And so it seems to me that what we need is a vision and a pathway of Palestinian freedom, because the freedom of Palestinians, the liberation of Palestinians, either to be citizens in their own country or to be citizens in the country in which they live, which is Israel, because they live under Israeli control. Without that, then ultimately there won't ever be peace. Yeah, well, that would be the ultimate tension that's happening here, right? It would appear convincing everybody that that's the case. There seems to be a disconnect, at least right now in Israel, and with some who are more pro the posture that we see out of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. When you propose that theory to someone, is there any response that you get? What's the response that they they tell you about that perspective? (laughs) I mean, I get uh, there, you know, there's a range of responses, but a lot of people disagree very fundamentally. They basically believe that um, uh, it would be too dangerous to allow Palestinians to have these basic rights, either in their own country or in uh, in in within the country in which they live in one equal Israel-Palestine. The response that I make is. When you deny, when you oppress people, when you deny them basic rights, you are inflicting a huge amount of violence upon them. That's the nature of oppression. It's the nature of people not having rights vis-a-vis the state under which they live. And that system of violence will lead people to respond violently back, sometimes in really terrible ways. And I point to South Africa, for instance, um, or Northern Ireland. And I say, look, or even the United States. And I say, look, these countries became more peaceful when we moved towards greater freedom uh, for populations that historically had been denied their freedom. And if you deny people that those freedoms, you're actually creating a situation which is less peaceful for everybody. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate that not only historic, but worldwide perspective, because it's not something that's super unique that we've seen here, though one unique point that I think comes out in conversations I have with folks is they'll say, well, Nick, the difference is the fight that Jewish people had to get a state, right? And the feeling that there's no place to be home. This is the only place that's home that kind of complicates uh, this opinion in their perspective. So before I let you go, uh, do you think that adds anything unique to what's happening here? And, And what would your take or perspective be on that complication? I think that Israel-Palestine, what we, what Jews call the land of Israel, should be a home for Jews. But I believe it can be a home for Jews and Palestinians as well. Um, there are two populations that live there. And I actually believe that it will be a safer place for Jews to call home if Palestinians can also have the basic rights and dignity that allow them to feel at home there as well. If you share a home with another group of people, ultimately your fates are interlinked. And that's why I think 
that to believe that Jews in the long term will be safe and can flourish at the expense of Palestinians, it seems to me, is I think not only immoral in terms of its treatment of Palestinians, but I also think is self-defeating. Mm. We're going to have to end it there, Peter Beinart, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents and also the author of the Beinart Notebook Substack and a professor at the City University of New York. Peter, what don't you do? Thank you so much for joining <laughs> Thank us you very much. on the Metro. Take care. Thanks a lot. Coming up on the Metro, we'll hear a story about the Detroit women who helped create techno music and its sound and its influence. You all stay right there for the Metro. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And, you know, it's a Friday. It's a decent Friday. It's March 1st. It's the start of Women's History Month as well. And we always think about dancing, you know, moving our feet. Techno music is Detroit. And many of us grow up listening to the music without knowing its origins lie heavily in the basements and the nightclubs of the city. Techno is often thought of as a male-dominated and founded genre, (laughs) Nick, (laughs) with names we all come to know and love, like Juan Atkins and even the Detroit uh, lover in Chicago native, Delano Smith. But of course, women were right there, right there with them, spinning the records. For the 700th episode of the RA Exchange podcast, a new three-part series has been started called Detroit's Blueprint or with the Detroit Blueprint Collective. It explores the untold history of Detroit techno from the women who helped build it. Joining us on the show live right now is Crystal Miner, host of the RA Exchange podcast, and we have Alana Greenlee at AKA DJ AK. Thank you both for joining the show. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate you. We're such big fans of you, Tia. Oh, don't, don't, you know. don't. Yes, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to get too, too gushy, but it's here. always dope to hear, you know, like a black woman on the air putting on for just music and culture. So thank you so much. Yeah. And I love the fact that we have young Detroit uh, DJs or people who are into music musicians here trying to tell the story of the generation that came before them, Mm -hmm. those who helped build the genre that that you are all now into, really into. Mm -hmm. So, you know, starting off with you, Crystal, why is it important to highlight women of Detroit techno? I just feel like it has been such an integral part of everything that we do. Um, and even deeper than just like the music itself, like culturally, I know when I was coming up as a DJ, I'm still coming up as a DJ, you know, um, and working with AK and working with Black Moonchild, the other members of Blueprint, we were lost. Um, a lot of it was just finding our own way through the industry and through the scene and 
mm-hmm. in a city like Detroit where collaboration is at the root of everything, you know, it's like you can't name a musician who hasn't been shaped or molded by um, someone before them. That line just tends to get a little bit more jagged and not as clear through when it comes to women. And it's not that, you know, it's like I'm a strict gender separatism, like separatist, but like, you know, I learned from men as much as I learned from women. But I do think there's a perspective that we were all missing kind of going into the industry. Um, And I think that for us to go back and find these stories and sit down with these women, um, it is such a grounding and like healing moment. yeah, I can't really underestimate the impact it's having on um, having on all of us. Nice, DJ AK. Same a uh, different uh, same question to you, pretty much. Is just the importance of highlighting women of Detroit techno and in, the, in that background and that history there, especially just like Crystal was saying, you Black mm-hmm. Moonchild, uh, all together doing really big things right now as young Black women in Detroit DJ scene. Yes, yes, I completely one thousand percent agree. Um, especially coming from the younger generation. Um, I'm 24, and I started DJing when I was, like, 18. And coming up, I didn't even know there was a world out there for me to explore, let alone there were other Black women um, playing the music that I wanted to play, that I could go see, that I could experience for myself in real time. And it was very hard trying to find these other women Uh, these other icons, these other legends who do the things that I see myself doing when I got older or when I grew up. And the lack of documentation, the lack of visibility that I witnessed um, on my journey coming up, and it was, like, very disheartening for me. And I felt like if it's hard for me, I know it's going to be hard for other women that's coming up after us or, like, our other peers. Um other young women who see us doing this and they want to learn more. They want to know more about their roots. And we really felt like it was our duty to kind of like bridge the gap between us intergenerationally so that we can all learn together and we can all grow together and we can really like magnify our presence in the drama, if that makes any sense makes total sense I'm, I'm, I'm thinking right now this i listened to the first episode of the podcast and just really how you all were i mean dj sent was really giving really good facts as well as dj dj minx so i was just thinking about just some of the things that you all were learning what does it feel like especially uh coming up learning how to dj learning the scene to have these legends these pioneers still spinning and you can still go see them and still just kind of immerse yourselves in what they're doing what does that feel like to still have that history here I'm it's Crystal. So I was going to say, starting with Crystal. Sorry, Sorry DJ uh, AK. We're going to start with Crystal. Um, it's incredible. And it, it also can be like a little infuriating because I think that um, still to this day, like uh, neither of those women or any of the other women that we'll be working with in this podcast have gotten what they deserve. Right. Yeah. So it's just like to be able to be in community with them still shows us where our duty is, which is to shine as much of a light on them as possible. Um you know, bef- got, you know, not before it's too late. That's a, a bit more of it, but um, if not us, who's going to do it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. DJ AK, same thing. What about just being immersed with those who are around you who have been doing this for almost 30, 40 years? It's beautiful to see. A lot of it is not easy work at all. Um, it's very humbling. 
um, at times. And it's also very, I don't know, it's like a reality check because what we see on the outside is definitely not what we witness, like, in the behind the scenes, backstage, like what these women go through and just to real time see them persevere and to real time see that it is possible for for you to do it at any age, any time of life with kids, you know, marriage, that this is possible. It's it's very inspiring as well. Um I feel a lot of emotion. I love that so much. Uh, Right now, we're chatting with Crystal Miner and Alana Greenlee, a.k.a. DJ AK, who are a part of the RA Exchange podcast, doing a three-part series exploring the women who were behind techno, especially in its exception right in the beginning. I was listening to DJ Minx when she was talking a little about being in the late 80s, early 90s, and just going through those scenes and performing and just having, uh, being in spaces that were male-dominated and having to fight off certain sexual advances and just certain things that she had to do with what was it like or what has it been like learning about those important hard lessons especially being a dj still in a pretty male-dominated field uh, right now and i'm gonna start with you crystal um i think that what it's illustrating is even if there is more visibility on women it's not that the industry is necessarily becoming safer for it or safer for us um and i think that if we can just highlight you know what I mean? It's as simple as like saying, hey, this is still prevalent. It's just one step closer um, to making it a more equitable field. Um, like I love music. I love DJing. But one thing I also notice is that we don't have enough women who are in other positions in the industry as well. So it's like it's one thing if you have a woman on stage, but behind her is uh her manager who's a guy and her agent who's a guy and the label owner who's a guy and it's like how do we kind of like really fully um branch out into um branch out into the industry to make it a little bit more equitable for women and dj ak same thing to you like some of the things that you've learned uh just from speaking with some of the women dj who's been who've been uh in the field for such a long time what have you learned about being in that male-dominated field and standing for yourself well um one of the most most important rules I've learned was safety first and how to advocate for myself as a woman in these spaces and how to keep myself safe as well as other women in these spaces. And also to like sum it up, I feel like talking to them, I felt like I was walking into school and like sitting down at a desk, taking notes, like ready to learn um, and just to study them into taking everything that they have to say because honestly they've been through it all first before I was even thought of so honestly just soaking it all in awesome um, awesome so my yeah. last question before I got to let you go because we're running out of time we're gonna let you go the podcast itself give me the name the full title and just give me the what the three-part series is really really getting into I know we talked a little bit about the AIDS epidemic a pandemic as well as so many different things that came out of that pot that first episode alone mm-hmm. so just give us the, the the rundown crystal of that uh three-part series yeah we're just trying to lay a foundation uh this is a field and a scholarship that has been really underexplored so uh just with Detroit's blueprint is the name of our series um for the first episode, we're exploring the 90s. The next episode will focus more on the 2000s. And the third episode will focus on uh, contemporary black women um, in Detroit techno. And we just want to cover a lot of ground with what we have. Um, and hopefully from there, be able to do further projects exploring the topic. 
And AK, DJ AK, you got anything else to add? Uh, I do not. Beautifully said, Crystal. Love you. Oh, Crystal Miner and Alana <laughs> Greenlee, a.k.a. DJAK. Thank you so much for joining us on the Metro, explaining to us about the Detroit's Blueprint collection, as well as the three-part series with the RA Exchange. Thank you so much, and good luck with expanding the idea of women in techno. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET. You just heard from Tia Graham. I'm Nick Austin. We've been discussing music, techno, jazz influences in techno. I enjoy a little bit of jazz on my techno and electronic music. And the Detroit Jazz Festival is now accepting submissions for the 2024 event taking place from August 30th to September 2nd. No, you won't hear a bunch of techno during that. But you will hear a lot of great jazz. And if you want to be a part of that show, they're seeking professional jazz musicians and bands at any stage in their career to apply. The deadline to submit ensembles is June 1st. For more information, visit DetroitJazzFest.org. And as we continue here on the Metro on 101.9 WDET, natural disasters have become a more normal aspect of life. In Detroit, extreme wind and flooding events has caused a tremendous amount of damage just the last few years. As a response, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, is establishing disaster relief centers throughout Michigan. In Wayne, Eaton, and Macomb counties, several are coming online to provide assistance to Michiganders impacted by severe late August storms that occurred this past summer. To talk about the new centers and what people can do to get assistance they need, we have Larissa Hale here. She is a media relations specialist for FEMA. Larissa, welcome to the Metro. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. (laughs) Happy to have you here, especially with, I know people went through so much struggle there, and sometimes it can just be difficult to figure out uh, how to get the help that you need. So let's just start from the basics. What do these centers offer in terms of support to people uh, who have property damage that they've suffered from these severe weather events? Well, the disaster recovery uh, centers themselves are just kind of a physical place that people can go to speak to uh, FEMA agents and other resources that we provide. So uh, we do encourage people to register. They can go online at disasterassistance.gov. They can call the 1-800 helpline number, which is 1-800-621-3362. Or they can go to one of the disaster covers that are across the state. Uh, We do have three in uh, Wayne County. Now, of the three in Wayne County, we do have one that's closing permanently uh, tomorrow. That is the one that's located at the Gibraltar City Hall. That one is uh, 29450 Monroe Street in Gibraltar. They will close uh, permanently on Saturday, March 2nd, but the other two still remain open. We have the Wayne County Southeast, which is located at the Wayne County Community College Downriver Campus, which is located at 21,000 North Line Road in Taylor. Those hours are Monday through Thursday, 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., as well as Friday through Saturday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and they're closed on Sundays. And that uh, the last uh, Wayne County 
uh, Canton West Central DRC is located at the Canton Human Services Building, which is 5430 Schoolhouse Road in Canton. So even though we have maybe one or two closing across the state, we still have a lot uh, that are still open. So I want to make sure the listeners are clear that not all of them are closing. Uh, Yeah, and because the registration period is uh, April 8th. The registration period. So I want to unpack a bunch of this. Let's get back to the registration period in just a moment. First, mm-hmm. the physical locations. Mm-hmm. It, just to make sure I understand, that's some place that you go to that's going to give you basically the same information as if you were talking to someone on the phone. You're not mm-hmm. carrying a bunch of lumber out that you can use to <laughs> reconstruct your house. Is that accurate? Yeah. So okay. like I said, so um, if you are more comfortable sitting in front of someone talking about your situation, uh, you can go there. You can register there. Someone can take your application there. That's and it's a good place where you can express everything that's going on. And then based off this, you know, what you tell us, yeah. there are different resources within the, the Disaster Recovery Center that we can offer to you. We do have the Small Business Administration. They they have specialists on hand, too, because they provide loans. FEMA provides grants. Yeah. The SBA provides loans. So there is a difference. Uh, their interest rates are very low, like 2.5, things like that. Yeah. But uh, the, the Small Business Administration, they help people get back 100 sure. percent. FEMA, we just help you to get safe, sanitary and livable. But All if you right. want to get back to what you were before, yeah. we recommend the SBA and then the hazard mitigation. They help you build back better and stronger. Great. So let's jump in here because, again, a lot of different government programs. And I know even me, my head can be spinning sometimes with this. So <laughs> registration period you mentioned. I'm not even quite sure what that's the registration period for. Right. It's not just mm-hmm. my house was destroyed. FEMA, give me money. When you're talking about this registration period that uh, is coming up, what's that for? And why is that important date? The registration period deadline to register is April 8th. Mm-hmm. Now, in uh, people that lived in Eaton County, Ingham, Ionia, mm-hmm. Kent, Livingston, Macomb, Monroe, Oakland, and Wayne, if you did have any damages uh, from the severe storms, flooding, and tornadoes that happened from August 24th through the 26th of 2023, and you live in those counties, you can register. Um, so, like I said, when it comes to, and the the deadline to register for that assistance is April 8th. Okay. So that's why that deadline is so important. Very good. And then you mentioned uh, loans. Uh, we've got small business administration. We've got loans for businesses. And then is there uh, services for individuals? What's the difference and what is offered out there for folks who need some help? Yeah. Now, again, like I said, the small business administration, they do provide low interest loans, not just to businesses, but sure. also to homes as well, too. Okay. Um, and during the registration process, um, during the application process, you may be uh, encouraged to uh, file an application with the SBA. We highly do recommend that you do uh fill out that application and turn it in if um, you're not actually obligated to take the loan. But um, if you do qualify for it, we do encourage you to take the loan because um, it does provide additional resources for you. Um, But at, but as it relates to us from FEMA, we assist with home repair, housing assistance, uh, reimbursements um, for if you had rental assistance or if you had to check into a hotel or stay somewhere while your repairs are being made to your home. All these receipts that you have accumulated as it relates to the repairs, we encourage you to save all that. So when you get to the uh, registration, you have all that information. Good. Well, I got only 30 seconds left. No Real quick, before we let you go, for people who want more information, website, phone number, what's the best way for them to find out more? Definitely they can go to disasterassistance.gov. 
of, go online to uh, register. They can call 1-800-621-3362. They can download the FEMA mobile app or visit one of our disaster recovery centers across the state. All right. Larissa Hale, Media Relations Specialist for FEMA. Thanks so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you. It's 1019 WDET-FM. I'm Nick Austin here hanging out with you. Coming up, we'll talk with a shop owner who is finding different ways to honor and preserve print media. Friday, March 1st, the first day of Women's History Month. Just taking a quick look at the weather forecast today. Clear skies. Clouds will accumulate throughout the day with a high around 49 degrees tonight. Actually, tomorrow, Saturday, mostly cloudy with a high near 56 degrees. Sunday will be mostly sunny with a high near 63 degrees. And the record for that was 67 in 1974, so we might hit that. And Monday, expect a high near 70 degrees. Uh, that that day, it was 1983, we had 69 degrees on a, on a March 4th. So we may be hitting some records, we may be breaking some heat records, but also we're learning about the digital age. In the digital age of media, what do we do with our print records? One native Detroiter wants to make sure physical media remains handy. Alea Olu is the founder of From Us to You, the co-founder of Detroit Art Week, and the co-owner of Periodicals, an experimental magazine shop and concept store in Detroit. The store's mission is to honor tangible media, documents, and making sure they can stay handy. Alea, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so... I always ask native Detroiters, what side yes. of Detroit are they from? West side. West side. West, West side. side. West what side part? Or die. Um, I grew up primarily in uh, Grand Mount Rosedale. Yep, 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 yep. So Love it. So why an experimental magazine sh- and, and concept store? Sure. Um, so Periodicals is actually an extension of our PR agency. It's the PR media relations agency, Olu and Company, that um, my husband, Imani Olu, founded in New York like almost 12 years ago. Um, and I came along in 2017 and since then we've, um, you know, expanded so much in Detroit and I really wanted to have, um, sort of an outward facing shop so that we can interact with the city, um, you know, visitors to Detroit outside of just our client base. Yeah. So what are some of the things or what, what made you think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to do this experimental storefront and I'm going to make sure I have these magazines and different things that people can actually hold and put in their hands and take with them physical media. What was yeah. the, the idea behind that? So I think for me, one thing I I really, really love about the city and being from here um, and choosing to, um, you know, build here and stay here is, you know, we can, we can sort of, open or host the sort of experiences we want and sort of design the city in the way we want to see it. I think that is like a very unique value proposition that Detroit offers. And so for me, I grew up on magazines. I grew up on Vibe and Source. That is where I really got my language um, around music. And then there were so many as I you know, got older throughout my adolescence, my teenage years, there are magazines that really shifted my perspective. Like Suede Magazine was an offshoot of Essence magazine and I just thought this magazine is brilliant I'm learning about just like all of these different um, 
microcosms on the spectrum of blackness. And it just really expanded my point of view as early as, you know, 15. Also like Wax Poetic magazine. Um, And then as I got older, I was really opened up, you know, to the world of print media as I started to do more sort of like self-study. And so for Detroit, you know, I wanted to have a place where young people, older people, no matter where you are, no matter where you are in your career, your discovery could have a place that wasn't necessarily a bookstore, but a magazine shop that focused on different niches, different stories globally um, in the city to just like lock in and and, um, sort of discover new ideas. Have you seen like a a, a want and a need for the magazines or print material or whatever reading material that's outside of a book? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what people love about magazine, you know, they always say if you build it, they'll come. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, no one had said to me, we need a magazine shop in Detroit. That wasn't really a conversation. But like in my travels, seeing magazine shops, I saw like how. Um, hungrily people were absorbing that material and how happy they were to sort of be browsing a magazine shop. Um, And so the first week we opened, the response was incredible and people were saying things like, thank you for being here. Uh, And so, you know, since, since we've opened, so many people have shared their stories about, you know, their interaction with publications, publications they grew up on, publications they've discovered um, so yeah, the thirst is definitely there. Awesome. And, and one of my last questions to you, especially about periodicals and just offering tangible media that you can hold in your hands once again, um, what are some of the things, I guess you can say, or what are some of the things you hope people take away from when they are walking past periodicals or, or, or just walking into the store for the first time? What do you want people to experience? Um, so for me, like, you know, the reading a publication was always a treat. Um, just like the act of like being in my room, uh, reading a magazine. And so when you walk into periodicals, the first thing people say is, oh, the vibes are so good in here. It smells so great in here because we also offer um, candles, writing tools, you know, body care, skin care. And I really wanted to bring that element of an intimate space and um, you just sort of being in your private space, like reading and discovering these fresh ideas. So I think the takeaway when people come into the shop is I want them to feel that sort of like intimate experience of sort of regenerizing the um, creative side of your mind. Yes. Yes. And, and my last thing is where is the store at really located? Where is the actual address of the store? So it's 4892 Grand River. We're right on the corner of Warren and Grand River. And, you know, someone from the West side, we love, Grand River, so <laughs> had yes, to be do. there. Yes, we yes. do. We have been chatting with the founder of From Us to You, co-founder of Detroit Art Week and co-owner of Periodicals, experimental magazine shop and concept store based in Detroit on Grand River in Warren. Alea Olu, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you for having me. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. We just spoke with a black business owner here in Detroit, and there can be challenges that are associated with that. But what are they and what can we learn from the experiences that these folks have in Detroit? Well, recently, the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago in Detroit conducted a survey to learn about the resource needs of small black owned businesses. The study was motivated in part by stresses brought on during the COVID-19 pandemic. When we return, we're going to learn a little bit more about what that survey had when we speak with one of its authors when we return. 
Welcome back to the Metro right here on 1019 WDETFM. It is Friday. It is March 1st. It is the first day of Women's History Month. I was excited about that, Nick. But we are chatting about Black-owned businesses. Yes, that's right. Recently, the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago conducted a survey about the resource needs of small Black-owned businesses here in Detroit as the bank wanted to learn more about how to support a healthy ecosystem for these businesses. To learn more about their findings, we're joined right now by Rick Mattoon, Detroit Regional Executive for the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Rick is one of the researchers behind the survey and analysis. Rick, welcome to the Metro. Thanks very much, and thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk to you about what we found in the survey. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on also. So let's just start here. Can you give us an overview of what even motivated you and your team to undertake the survey on Black-owned businesses in Detroit? Well, there were a couple of things. The first was, obviously, we wanted to know how Black businesses fared coming out of the pandemic, because obviously there was a significant financial hit that most businesses took during that time. Um, the second thing is, is we think, really believe that Black-owned businesses in Detroit are really going to be core to the sort of future success of the city. Um, they're a real mechanism for building wealth within communities and neighborhoods within Detroit. And so we want to know better what their needs are and what would help them succeed um, in the future. Yeah. So what were some of the most striking findings that you found from your survey regarding these challenges? Um, I think the most interesting thing is, is we have that, first of all, these are very dynamic businesses. Uh, most of them are small or sole proprietor businesses. And but almost all of the owners of these businesses also have plans for significant expansion. So these are opportunities for growth within these communities. The other thing that we really wanted to understand is what were the capital needs these businesses faced in terms of helping them to grow? And like, what, what are the responsibilities in terms of financing these businesses to make them successful? Yeah. So since the survey's completion, speaking of uh, financing sources, you know, new sources of funding did become available, such as the Emergency Capital Investment Program, which you alluded to in your survey. Can you explain that program and how developments like this could impact black owned businesses in the city? Yeah, uh, programs such as uh, such as that one and others were partially designed to, you know, mitigate some of the, the difficulties that were happened specifically related to the pandemic. But they also give opportunities for figuring out better exactly what kind of financing is best, most needed by these businesses. And one of the things we discovered during our survey is that most of these businesses are looking for sort of short-term loans. Um, that often are related to supporting operations and cash flow needs. And so what they need is sort of immediate financing. They don't need it over a long period of time. And that's one of the concerns is a lot of, there aren't a lot of mechanisms or, you know, products right now in the market that are specifically designed to meet that particular capital need that seems to be so critical to these businesses. All right. Well, I got about 30 seconds here. So let's just get into policy solutions. I mean, based on the survey, do you have any recommendations for lawmakers or uh, policy uh, influencers right now on what they can do to help improve the climate for these businesses? Yeah, probably the best thing they could do is also is support more actively the community development finance institutions and the minority depository institutions, which are partially are better designed to actually be able to target these businesses and understand their needs 
And if you can build up that network, I think it have a significant impact on improving outcomes for um, businesses in, in throughout Detroit. All right. Rick Mattoon, Detroit Regional Executive uh, for the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. I'm going to keep monitoring this, so we may have to have you back here on the Metro. All right. Great. Thanks very much. It's the Metro on 1019 WDET. Right now, I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham. And coming up on the Metro, what one Southwest Detroit organization has been doing to encourage young girls of color to engage in hockey? That plus more is coming up on the Metro. It's the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And honestly, this year was the first year I went to my first hockey game. First Red Wings game. Thank you. And it was so much fun. And it was really, really immersive. And I had a great time. So this story, the Clark Park Hockey Association, it works to make hockey accessible to kids in southwest Detroit. Latino and black folks are particularly underrepresented in the sport, which is expensive, especially when factoring in equipment costs and participation fees. Robert Ayala has worked with the program since the 90s. He's the coach of the Clark Park Sharks and Tiger Sharks, the girls teams. Robert told WDET's Sasha Ryan why it was important for him to support a hockey program for young girls in Detroit and how the program is changing as the weather warms. Why do you think it's important for children of color to have access to hockey? Why not just something else? Why not just something easier? It's their dreams. I, 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 I watch these little, I got little girls this year, a lot of them, seven, eight-year-olds, two six-year-olds that can fly. And uh, you can see their faces, you know, the, the, the rosiness from skating outside in the cold and their cheeks and their nose is all red. Their ears are red. There's always there's plenty of sports for boys. But hockey for girls is rare. And we we have we have managed for the last 20 years provide a girls team or two teams every year. And that's and it gives me great enjoyment. I'm, the sad thing about it. About, about nine of the older girls are aging out, and they by aging out, they're, they're not strong enough to go and join, to be picked up by 16 new teams or 19 new teams, because they don't get enough ice at Clark Park. Let's talk about that. Clark Park is an outdoor rink, and right. it is especially susceptible to the the effects of climate change. And so in a week like this, where we have temperatures oh. around 50 degrees and then up to 70 degrees and then even down to 30 degrees, that really affects your ability to run the program. Absolutely. We've lost almost a full month of hockey. In early January, we had five days of real warm weather. Not like this, though, but we couldn't skate. And then the following week we skated and then the cold weather came in and it got the windshield factory because Clark Park sits down there by the Ambassador Bridge closer to the river or two blocks from the river it got nine below so I cut I pulled it and we pulled the kids off off the ice because it's too cold for them so we had another four days of real bitter coldness and then came the warm weather again then no ice again for another four days five days 
they can't skate on it because we have jet ice at Clark Park. And jet ice is like a foam. We, we water and we put down this foam that hardens into a nice field. Then we put layers of water. The jet ice runs Clark Park roughly right around $2,000. It's, it's sad because it's, it's a waste of money for, because of the weather. And then this week we skated Sunday morning, but we had to get up early at 7 o'clock skate. By noon, the ice was starting to weaken, but we got the three games in real quick for 11 o'clock. One game after another. Boom, 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 you know. Robert Ayala runs the Clark Park. Clark Park Hockey Association. He spoke with WDET Sasha Ryan. Clark Park ended its outdoor hockey season this week. It's the Metro on 1019 WDET. That's Tia Graham. I'm Nick Austin, but that's not all. I forget to do that sometimes. I forget to say my name sometimes, Nick. That's all right. I'll say it for you, Thank Tia. You. Thank you. Let them know. And I'll also say this next <laughs> young up-and-comer's <laughs> name. Host of In the Groove, Ryan Patrick Hooper, heard every day here at noon. Ryan, what you got for us on the show? I prefer the term young bruiser. You know, that's that's what I like to go by. Every day, Ryan. Every day with you. And I've also got three hours of music, a mixtape made just for you. We're going to focus a bit on Jordan Rakai. Fantastic singer. This voice is going to blow you away. He was actually in our studios years ago. And I'm excited to play some stuff from his new record, The Loop. And we're going to keep highlighting... Hamtramck blowout, 150 bands, 16 venues in Hamtramck. I was there last night. Dusty Rose Band, the heaviest thing I've ever seen. This is local music on high adrenaline, and I'll give you a preview of it coming up on In the Groove. All right, that's the Metro for March 1st, 2024. You can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbrandt. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music is done by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn, and our program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. This is WDET-FM, Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Happy Women's History Month. Yeah, you got in on there early. Nice. Yeah. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.